Countless films have been set in New York, and while there are classics aplenty and dozens of masterpieces, there are precious few so indelible they change the way the city is perceived. I'm talking about the likes of The Crowd, The Naked City, On the Waterfront, Faces, Midnight Cowboy, Taxi Driver and Do the Right Thing. And of course, The Sweet Smell of Success. I love this dirty town. It started out in 1950 when Ernest Lehman, then a struggling writer, penned a novella called Tell Me About It Tomorrow. Although it was published in Cosmopolitan magazine, Lehman's regular paycheck at the time was coming from a publicity firm. And seeing the wheeling and dealing that went into placing puff pieces in syndicated gossip columns, Lehman had the inside knowledge essential in lifting the lid on a very venal business. May I ask you a naive question, Mr. Falco? Exactly how does a press agent work? Uh, well, answer the man, Sidney. He's trying to take you off the hook. You just saw a good example of it, Senator. A press agent eats a columnist's dirt and is expected to call it manna. But don't you help columnists by furnishing them with items? Sure. A columnist can't do without us, except our good and great friend J.J. forgets to mention that. You see, we furnish him with items. What, some cheap, gruesome gags? You print them, don't you? Yes, with your client's names attached. That's the only reason the poor slobs pay you, to see their names in my column all over the world. Now I make it out you're doing me a favor? I didn't say The day I can't get along without a press agent's handouts, I'll close up shop and move to Alaska lock, stock and barrel. Lehman's story centered around a high-profile newspaper columnist, J.J. Hunsecker, who pressurizes a young and ambitious publicist, Sidney Falco, into breaking up his sister's relationship with a jazz musician. Lehman's story generated a lot of talk, and so unerring was his depiction of his profession's chicanery that it lost him a good number of friends. Adding insult to those injuries, Hollywood showed no interest in bringing Lehman's story to the screen. But that hardly mattered, because by the time the story did catch Hollywood's eye, Lehman had become such a hot property that by 1954, he had earned an Oscar nomination alongside Billy Wilder for Sabrina. This is what you do on your very first day in Paris. You get yourself some rain, not just a drizzle, but honest-to-goodness rain. Then you find yourself someone really nice and drive her through the Bois de Boulogne in a taxi. The rain's very important because that's when Paris smells its sweetest. That success attracted the attention of one of Hollywood's biggest stars, Burt Lancaster. Lancaster was hot off having earned his own Oscar nomination in 1953 for his lead performance in From Here to Eternity. But Lancaster was more than just a movie star. He had his own production deal with the movie studio United Artists, and in 1955, it was his company that had produced the low-budget Marty, which had won not just Best Picture at the Oscars, but also the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Star power and a business mind were further compounded by Lancaster's imposing physique. By many accounts, he rarely discussed ideas with colleagues when intimidation would do the job more quickly. Simply put, Lancaster wanted Lehman's story, but although Lehman had it in his contract that he would also direct from his own script, Lancaster not only brought in another writer, but removed Lehman as director. That may sound ruthless, but undoubtedly, those two decisions set the film on the road to becoming a masterpiece. What has this boy got that Susie likes? 
integrity, acute, like indigestion. What does this mean, integrity? A pocket full of firecrackers, waiting for a match. You know, it's a new wrinkle. To tell you the truth, I never thought I'd make a killing on some guy's integrity. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. Lancaster bought in famed playwright Clifford Odets. Odets pretty much left Lehman's plot alone, instead taking his pen to the dialogue. He rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, churning out dozens of variations of each scene, and in so doing, strengthened the characters and sharpened their conflicts. Back in the 1930s, Odets had been a Broadway phenomenon, when, at the age of just 29, he had no less than five plays running simultaneously on the Great White Way. A socially committed dramatist and a champion of the left, Odets soon decamped to Hollywood, but there his talents foundered and he struggled to get regular work. If any of that sounds familiar, perhaps it's because you've seen Barton Fink, in which the career of the Coen Brothers title character follows a similar trajectory. Anyway, worse was soon to follow for Odets because, with his past association with the political left, he soon became the subject of the McCarthy witch hunts terrorising Hollywood. Odets helped neither himself nor his friends by providing testimony to the HUAC. And so, when Lancaster called him in to rewrite The Sweet Smell of Success, he saw it as an opportunity not so much to settle old scores as to settle with himself. Be warned, son, I'll have to blitz you. Frankly, JJ, I don't think you got the cards to blitz me. I don't? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think so. I'll listen for one more minute. About a year ago, I did you a certain favor. It was a thing, well, I never did such a dirty thing in my life. All right, all right, it's forgotten, forget it. Which brings us up to five weeks ago. Sydney, I got a nasty little problem here. Do so and so and I'll appreciate it. Did I say no? Was I fussy? Look, I'm the first to admit it didn't gel as fast as we'd like. But why all of a sudden can't I get you on the phone? And why, as of this date, am I frozen out of the column? You finished? No, let me finish, J.J. I don't like this job. That boy is dumb on matinee days only. Otherwise, he's got a head. And Susan, like you said, is growing up two heads. What I mean, we got a slippery, dangerous problem here. Not we, Sydney. You. Correct me if I'm wrong, J.J. We. Because if I'm going to go out on a limb for you, you got to know what's involved. My right hand hasn't seen my left hand in 30 years. I'll do it, J.J. Don't get me wrong. In for a penny, in for a pound, I'll go through with it. But stop beating me on the head. Let me make a living. Sydney, what you promised, do it. Don't finagle around. It's later than you think. Excuse me, J.J., it's later than you think that boy proposed to her. You see, when Ernest Lehman wrote the novella, one person in particular whose wrath he stirred was Walter Winchell, a newspaper, radio gossip commentator and right-wing demagogue who used his entertainment social and political connections to go after those whom he deemed to be un-American. Based in New York, Winchell had a syndicated readership of 50 million and another 20 million listening in each week to his radio show. It was Winchell's practice to use salacious gossip and innuendo to attack and even blackmail public figures whom he simply did not like. Just how corrupt Winchell was can be seen by the way he treated his own daughter, Walda. Barely in her 20s, she was engaged to marry a young Broadway producer, Billy Kahn. But Winchell so disapproved of his daughter's relationship 
that he not only lobbied FBI Chairman J. Edgar Hoover to have Khan deported from the United States, he also had Walda confined to a psychiatric institution. Yes. JJ, I presume you saw the Elwell smear. Uh, uh, no, no, no medals, not yet. It's a lot worse than that. Anti Van Cleve is firing him. I just got it from the horse's mouth. They were just here in a panic. You mean to say they've already traced the smear to you? Then what are you so smug about? Susie isn't dumb. All she has to do is put two and two together and I'm a chicken in a pot. JJ, peace on earth and goodwill to men. Everything's working out just the way I planned. I guarantee the bomb will pop right on schedule. But, however brilliant Lehman's story may have been, and no matter how sharp Odette's dialogue was, pretty much every scene in the script did little more than have people talking, and the whole thing was in danger of collapsing under the weight of the dialogue. The challenge was to give it a visual language, and to get around that obstacle, Lancaster decided to hire in a director who had not only never filmed in the United States, but one whose specialty was comedy. Alexander McKendrick had made his name at London's Ealing Studios, where he had directed such classics as Whiskey Galore and The Lady Killers. I used my skill as an illustrator on, in doing sit-up sketches uh, to parlay myself into the director's chair, really. And I've always done drawing, which is my equivalent of writing, really, because I think in terms of images. What McKendrick did was take the movie outside onto New York sidewalks, particularly the square mile between 42nd and 57th Street, which then constituted the city's theatre and nightclub districts. At the time, uh, I think very few people had shot on the streets of New York. Now, it's much easier with the light equip lightweight equipment that you've got uh, and uh, faster film stock and so on. It's very much easier and great films have been done in New York since then. But it was indeed one of the first attempts to shoot um, in the streets of New York, uh, um, for real, as it were. In so doing, McKendrick exploited the teeming nightlife to add a layer of sound to the dark themes. And those sounds were brilliantly composed by a very young Elmer Bernstein. More than that, McKendrick storyboarded the entire picture so that the camera movement mirrored the story's twists and turns. Paradoxical, I know, but if you turn down the sound, such is the strength of McKendrick's design that you can still see the power as it shifts back and forth between the characters. In that, McKendrick was more than assisted by legendary cinematographer James Wong Howe. Howe devised a masterful scheme whereby he had the walls lacquered with oil so that even within the dark shadows, they positively glistened. In that way, it appeared that the environment itself was a malevolent beast. Together, McKendrick and Howe made sure that much of the storytelling's heavy lifting was done by way of lighting, framing and camera movement. In actual fact, for more than one scene alone, there are more than 25 camera cues. Speaking of movement, look no further than Tony Curtis's Sidney Falco to see how he personifies the film's crackling energy. Where do you want to get? Way up high, Sam, where it's always balmy. No one snaps his fingers and says, hey, shrimp, brack the balls. Or, hey, mouse, mouse, go out and buy me a pack of butts. I don't want tips from the kitty. I'm in the big game with the big players. My experience I can give you in a nutshell, and I didn't dream it in a dream either. Dog eat dog. In brief, from now on, the best of everything is good enough for me. In what is his greatest performance, Curtis portrays a man who is all ticks and nervous animation 
perfectly reflecting Falco's anxious ambition. By contrast, Burt Lancaster's J.J. Hunsecker lies like a snake in a tree, eyeing his prey as they pass him by. Lancaster never moves unless he strikes, and so what you have is a brilliant play of opposites, an ambition that is always on the move against a power that simply stays put. In that way, McKendrick made sure that the characters, theme and plot all functioned simultaneously. All too often, films have characters who state the obvious, uttering words that don't reflect their character, but rather explain the plot, while the images merely house the action. Under McKendrick's direction, the sweet smell of success is so loaded with subtext, you can watch it with the sound turned down and still read the events. This is because the images not only heighten, but also deepen the meaning of the drama. While some films withstand repeated viewing, the sweet smell of success demands repeated viewing. And I can guarantee you that each time you watch it, you will appreciate even more a masterpiece that helped redefine the city in which it was set. Music